Thank you. I'm going to start with this longer something. It's called Pure Hollywood. How disappointing it was to wake intact and far away from the matchstick aftermath of the extinguished fires, thready smoke rising from piles that were homes, the famous modern house not among them. Mimi? He asked quietly, driving up a slight incline and into a space still hers, everything, all of it, a modern house shaped like slung plates, no corners, different heights. What do you think this place is worth, he asked, still whispering so as not to disturb. What? There was only the house. What's it worth? It's like living in a great fucking painting is what it is. The place is priceless. The house was not much, that much cooler than the car, and Mimi went through the house and opened windows and the sliding door to the terrace. I know I'm letting in hot air, she said, but I hate things shut. She moved off to the kitchen and offered Stetson a drink. What are you doing, he asked, even as he found and filled two glasses with ice. I'm taking off my clothes, she said. They smell of smoke. I should go ahead and burn them. Off came her shell and the wavy pants that shivered down the chair rail fast as she threw them. Underneath she wore what looked like string. There wasn't much to her. Fuck, Stetson said. His shirt was off his pants, his shoes. He sniffed his arm. My arm stinks. He put his arm up to his sister's nose. What is that? Pickles, she offered. What did you have for lunch? He sniffed his other arm. Nothing. All the pleasure to be had in looking at Stetson, but Mimi had married Arnold Fine, ugly as an anvil. Arnie. Arnie was dead. Less than a month ago, her husband stepped into the pool and died. Age 72, heart attack. He was ashes in a matter of minutes. What happened after Arnie had died happened fast. The ambulance, the body bag, the funeral home, the furnace. Mimi poured vodka into her glass. Tonic, she pointed to the counter, and, and there's Perrier. Tap was okay with Stetson, but did she have any food? How can you be hungry? Smell your arms, she said. <laughs> Barely dressed, wearing pointy mules, Mimi walked onto the terrace to a hockney scene, only not so blue, more green. The lounge chairs were rightly low and wide, hewn from wood that would outlast them. But the pool? The pool was a swamp-tinted squiggle decorative. Stetson had never seen anyone swim in it, and bobbing in the water didn't count. Two million? Four million? This is like old times, Mimi said, bobbing in the water to her waist. You're tempting me, he said. Then, the terrace is tiny. Maybe three, five? Old times, that's new, she adjusted her strings, distracted by leaves sounding wooden in the wind, if only the wind weren't so hot. How do you ensure a priceless place, Stetson asked. You don't. She took up her glass and banged the cubes against her teeth, chewed ice. For a time, she stared at the house, then walked out of the pool and shivered back into the house to fix herself another drink. 
Is there someone here, Stetson asked when she returned, the gardener? A gardener came with the house. A man not so new was ignored. The gardener had a leaf blower. The plants weren't a problem, but the grotesque tree shed. Brown leaves, long as shoes, got shuffed around the walkways until the nameless gardener came to blow them out of sight. But where? They seemed to disappear, just as the gardener disappeared, week to week. Sometimes Mimi heard the hacking cough of his truck, sometimes his blower. Today she had heard nothing. There was nothing much to blow away, nothing dead in the pool, but the slack hose jumped, distended, and withdrew around the house, followed by the sound of water. It had to be the gardener. Mimi went to see, and yes, it was the gardener, misting the front of the house. He had nodded at her. What was wrong with him? Didn't he read the papers? Someone, not Mimi, not today, would have to tell him there was no more work here. She walked back to Stetson, enjoying the katak-katak of her shoes against the stone terrace, a sound both slutty and indulged, right out of the movies. But wasn't Mimi right out of the movies? She was pretty enough, everyone said. Does this really feel like home to you, he asked. Yes, she said, and she adjusted the chair to lie flat, eyes closed, given over to the liquidy heat lapping her pale body. We weren't married long enough for anyone to believe I loved Arnie, she said, but I did. He made me laugh. Honestly, there's a marriage measured in months. Aren't you hot? She sat up, wiped her eyes, and walked into the pool. Come in with me. The water's cold, but you get used to it. If his sister was thin... He was thin, too, jailbird sickly with his arms held up as he waded deeper, testing. The pool was not very deep, which might explain the slightly yellow color of the water, and the sky, too, was a creepy kind of yellow, a spreading dread. Do you think, she began and didn't finish, she said, the gardener's hosing down the house. When's the last time this pool was clean? Stetson treaded the water and looked around him. Just the color, he said, which, along with slimy tiles, was sickening, and he did his swimming such as it was in the middle. He dove under. He made a few strokes down and back. Only the tiles along the ledge of the pool seemed unclean, and he avoided the ledge until the last minute when he lifted himself out. Hey, she said, where are you going? Inside. In the kitchen, he refilled his glass and drank enough to fill it again before he set it on the counter, thirsty. His medicine made him thirsty. Mimi came up from behind, and he flinched at her touch. Water splattered against the windows. The gardener was close. You don't get it. I do, she said. You're sober, and I'm not. He said, that's right. Then he took up his glass and walked down the hall into the bathroom where a clunking noise signaled his intention to shower. From the looks of the soap, discolored, cracked, no one had used the downstairs shower for some time. Tepid, reddish-colored water pooled at his corpsey feet. He'd been out of the sun for a long time. The clunk of the pipes when he turned off the water echoed, sounding spooky. He couldn't do much with a hand towel and his long hair dripped onto his collar and down the back of his white shirt. At at least he felt cool, at least dressing, and the hotter prospects of the hours to come didn't dismay him. But his sister, 
Just getting past her was hard. Mimi stood almost as he'd left her, knobby in a way that made her look naked. She was listening to nothing he could hear, but her expression suggested the sound grated. What is it? You don't hear that? Not the pipes. There it is again. All he heard was the high-pitched present. Stay, she said. I can't, he said, and said again to himself, backing onto a steep road that wound through the dry brush, down the hillside, down the hill, past other drives and tucked away houses. The houses he could see were messy blots on other hills, expensive blots, of course, money. Stetson didn't have much, but whose fault was that? He knew that's what his sponsor would say. Why not whine home to Daddy and ask? The late afternoon sky he saw was the same Mimi saw, leached of all its color. Mimi, her eyes stung from the smoke, or crying both, and she drew the drapes and turned on a downstairs light, a small flame in the gloom of the mostly bare and sunken living room. The chair, her husband's, startled her. Where had it been that she had not seen it? Then her lawyer, good on his word, called, and she learned what she already knew. Nothing was hers. Briefly sober, she called Stetson to say she wasn't going to drink anymore and she wished he would come back. She didn't like to be alone in the house. I want to get better. I want to get over this. I wish you'd pick up, she said, then blipped off, hurt to think he hadn't even answered a call with her name on it. Would he listen to her message, come back soon enough? She fixed herself more of the same and lowered the blinds in the kitchen and in the dining room to spy on the gardener as he moved around the house. His expression was hard to make out, but she watched him wrestle the hose into a terracotta pot. The hose must have weighed more than he did, poor man. When she thought he might come to the front door, Mimi took off her mules and went through the house, up the floating staircase to what she had made into her bedroom where she hid between the bed and the wall. Would he knock? She waited. She waited for a long time, which was perhaps what he did. The gardener, in his garden colors, he stood outside the door in good faith of payment. But for what? Hosing down the house against fires, mounting staghorn ferns. What had he done today, this gardener, and why was it she only knew him as shadowy and poor? His stunted children rest their chins on the kitchen table. Sticky fly strips hang near the sink and back door. His wife's scorched hair is in the rice and on his tongue. Now the rice tastes dirty. Look elsewhere. Forget the shapeless face of his fat son. There is his favorite. There, his daughter, over there, near the fly strips, shaking cinnamon on everything she eats. Even beans, he asks her. The gardener. Where was he now? The gardener's truck was gone. The gardener was gone, left without being paid. Now, how will he feed those children? Driving east into the sensation of a rising sun, driving into mountains made no more attractive than dung by that same sun, not seen, not seen. Stetson was driving without any music and Jesus, it hurt to look at it, the desert house as he remembered it, a rusted box on stilts in the garden made of white crushed rock and cacti, too forbidding to play near, although their mothers sat among the stolid barrel heads, plinging the pink spines in her cloud of absence.
She liked to smoke and watch the sun drop behind the mountains on the other side of which was the Pacific and their father. Mother said their father was watching the same sky, but how did she know this? I do. When she said, I do, she would pout in the way Sabine Agard, the actress, did, and not as their mother. Why weren't they in school? Their mother said they could make up the weeks missed in summer at home in L.A. Their mother made a face Sabine Agard made in movies. Shifty. She turned away. On the baked stone she sat, barrel-like and spined in fish-hook spines, too fine to see, yet they knew enough not to brush against their mother. They sat quietly and waited out the sky until it dulled. Mimi's job was to scramble dinner, Stetson's to put out plates. They made a lot of noise. It felt good. Turned on the radio, and the Mexican guys in sombreros whined. Great cracks from the bacon Mimi poked, made them jump and rouse their mother who sniffed her way in but looked through them. The bacon buckled and the yolks broke. Careful, mother said, but too late. Grease prickled Mimi's arms and she yelped, no long, good night, tonight, they knew. No books, no songs, no prayers, no promises, no stories about when. When you were born, when you were two, was there ever a time before them, really? Yes. Since they had moved to the desert, Mother thought most about what happened before with people they didn't remember. Stetson shunned the eggs and stuck waddled fat from bacon up his nose. That's disgusting, Mimi cried, but their mother was gone. The next mo morning, their mother was wheeled out in a bag, Stetson was eight years old, Mimi was 11. Someone drove them to a little airport, put them on a little plane. They knew they were going to their father. All right. First pods gone by, tangled aster. Young as they appear to be, the house painters have daughters old enough to complain about, which they do, to each other across an expanse of a few feet on ladders at the south-facing second-story windows of the house. From the start, Peg has stayed in the house and watched from different windows as the boys have painted. She just hopes Pat Farkey keeps sending these boys. Mm -mm. She can barely say hello to the house painters, so abashed is she by their hearty sweetness and the lives she imagines for them. Peg talks to the kitchen chairs. She's doped, of course, but the furniture is company. The young house painters lean against their truck and smoke. Smoking. She did that once. Her husband Anders watches the boys smoke, says something makes them smile, or are they grimacing a little? Has he cornered them or asked something off-color, personal, you getting any, that sort of thing? She's heard his coarse approximations of street talk, young talk. She's heard him say to girls, you know what it means to smoke a cigarette on the street, don't you? He smiles by way of response. Anders did the right aid business today and, no surprise, got to talking with the pharmacist, Stephanie. He likes Stephanie. Girl's open as a penny, he says, true, but Peg can hardly face her. 
Stephanie was the one to fill their daughter's last, newest, failed prescription, the inflating and idiot-making pill that turned the girl into a parade balloon in need of handlers, chiefly her mother, the ones that made her quiet, helped her sleep, helped her wake, one a day, twice a day, twice a day with meals. Who doses her at Medfield? Peg doesn't know. They're not allowed to see her. The doctors think it best. There's nothing much to talk about over lunch but Pat Farkey's painters. And yes, as far as Anders is concerned, they are the best on the peninsula. Yes, he is happy with the job so far. Anders catches the door before it slams, and it seems he might say more, but what she halfway hears is Anders calling Ridge or Reg. What is it? She looks out the window over the sink and sees a boy in a pirate scarf in a squat painting the railing. Okay. And hearing Anders, the boy springs up to Ridge on ropey haunches, nods in greeting. She turns a knife in her hand and looks hard at this Ridge and then through the boy to the woods again and their neighbor's field of brown stalks and burst pods gone by tangled aster. She thumbs the blade, then uses the knife to skin the watery scum off the blackened breadboard, scrapes strings and stems into the compost bag, into the compost bag, potato peels from dinner's burger pie. My God, they do go on eating and eating. Maybe she's pushing for earlier meals to make the days pass faster. Your disappointments are mine. She had said this to Andy, to her daughter, Andy, in her boneless body, short neck, soft chin, moon face, smally featured. What was a mother to make of such a face, really? Say, it's much like mine. Peg knew the horrors of undressing, the crimped grooves of waistbands and camel-toed panties. A boy in school told Andy she looked like a muffin top, which Andy took at first to mean a good thing until her brother Carl told her, it's your gut hanging over your jeans. What was the matter with him? Hurts, prickly, hive-like bites, little poisons Peg can't scratch out. Maybe it's the moles on your face make you look old, Mom. And the boy had said worse, but she didn't always remember. They call Andy a gunt, he'd said. She doesn't want to remember gunt, but the hamburger grazed in the pan and gut Cunt, gunt, and the memory of Carl's mouth, raw skin, and black scruff is upended by Carl himself, loudly arrived. Hi, Mom. And behind him, his girlfriend, Leanne, both smiling as if they like her, as if they come by every day and are expected. Dad invited us. He didn't tell me. Anders points out the brushwork on the porch rail, skinny spindles. Come out and look. The name Farky is on his lips, though it's the kid, Ridge, that house painter who's done the work, Anders praises. Peg watches Carl and Anders and Leanne as they look up at the spindles and the scrolled eaves on the house, this old farmhouse once a hundred years ago, a tea house for the quarry down the road. A plaque near the front door reads, Fern Cottage, 1880. The name is Anders' invention. 
a dainty tea-like name and a nod to the ostrich ferns that thrive in the dark borders of the lower garden. What is Anders saying to these unexpected guests so that now Peg has to double up on potatoes and cut limp carrots for a side dish to a stretch thin dinner of gray burger pie? The business makes her angry even as she urges unsalted saltines and low-fat cheese. And when Leanne reaches her loose, inky arms, Peg sees numbers and initials, an excuse for petals, droopy, not so sad, really, really smeary. Now, for instance, Carl is talking about auto body parts online, alternators, or motor mounts, belts, something he can get for cheap. I want a Jaguar, Leanne says. Huh. Carl, who has been listening for anything Leanne might say, takes up with Anders again about a Corvette he could fix if only if Dad lends you money. No, Mom. Fixing cars, she says, costs money. I'm talking about Hardy's car. I said, fixing cars, you deaf? I'm talking about Hardy's car, what he needs to fix it. I could fix it. I could make some money fixing it, Peg. Don't call me Peg. Well, whoever you are, everything doesn't have to do with money. I'm not saying... That's all you've said. All you ever say is how much, how much, how much the painting's costing and how Farky's never here but lets his kids do the work. Kids younger than me, I should be doing the painting, right? Nothing to fight about now, Anders says. I didn't expect you for dinner tonight. Your father didn't tell me. I didn't invite you or your girlfriend, she says. I like the house painters. They have children. They're married. Yeah, real grown-up, I bet, and living happily ever, blah, blah. You want to pick a fight, Carl? Peg, please. This is why I hate coming here. Carl pushes away from the table, and Peg makes for the boy, grabs at his shirt. Don't you think you're a little old for a teenager, Carl? Leanne, the teenager, looks to what Carl does and follows him out, saying nothing as Carl talks loudly about Peg, the bitch. Is it any wonder Dad wants company? Carl turned 27 last March very quietly at the kitchen table over double-troubled chocolate cupcakes Peg has made for him for almost as many years. The girlfriend was missing. But Carl had seemed happy to her then, maybe not to her husband, Anders, no, maybe not as happy as the house painters, but celebrating in a house with a ghost for company, what could they expect? Not much. His nights, his days, his progress in the tech course, she doesn't ask, Carl doesn't report, he has an apartment. Anders helps with the rent because Carl's only part-time is the dry cleaner. He's otherwise, or says he is otherwise, taking mechanic courses at Ramapo. Peg makes the double trouble cupcakes for herself as much as for him. A bowl liquor, a spatula sucker. She doesn't stint on sugar and it shows, even though the boy ate most of them. She hasn't beaten the eat healthy drum very loudly, doesn't mention weight. Sleeveless dresses still chafe her arms and underwear yanks up her crack and hurts so that she stands still or moves hardly at all. One year the boy wanted cherry pie a la mode and Peg made both, the pie and the double trouble cupcakes. Today, 
She is barefoot in what Anders calls her farmer pants, bib overalls, softly comfortable, but loose as an old slipcover, and she is saddened to think she looks like a sofa, except that now she has no daughter to complain about. Once, but no more. Every time Peg looks at her right hand, she sees another kinked or swollen part visit her. Thank you.